Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Wednesday, September 20th. The United Auto Workers strike is becoming a real issue in the 2024 presidential race now. A little bit of recent history to start out and set this up. Remember the financial crisis of 2008, which hit the U.S. auto industry so hard? Mitt Romney, who, of course, everybody's talking about now for other reasons, would run against President Obama in 2012, right? He wrote a New York Times op-ed in 2008 with the headline, Let Detroit Go Bankrupt. The first line read, If General Motors, Ford, and Chrysler get the bailout that their chief executives asked for yesterday, you can kiss the American automotive industry goodbye. Mitt Romney in 2008. But a bailout was approved by Congress, as most of you know, and by that 2012 campaign against Romney, Obama's vice president, a guy named Joe Biden, was able to say this on the campaign trail. Osama bin Laden is dead and General Motors is alive. Now, as part of that crisis in Detroit, Auto workers, especially those hired after 2007, took pay and benefit cuts. The city of Detroit, by the way, did go bankrupt anyway in 2013. Romney's headline, Let Detroit Go Bankrupt, was about the companies. The city did go bankrupt, even though its flagship companies got bailed out. But that's another show. But today, the strike against the big three U.S. automakers is premised on the union's argument that the companies are making record profits, and so the workers should get things like a percentage raise similar to what the CEOs are getting, plus a return to company-backed pensions, not just 401ks, and more. So here's what Joe Biden says today. Auto companies have uh, seen record profits, including the last few years, because of the extraordinary skill and sacrifices of UAW workers. Those record profits have not been shared fairly, in my view, with those workers. Everyone acknowledges, though, that the transition to electric vehicles in response to climate change is a challenge to the big three's bottom line. So Republicans are lining up against climate policy as their main response to the strike and remaining mostly silent on the labor management issues. We'll play a couple of clips to that effect coming up. So let's try to take a step back, though, and look at the real economics of the auto industry. And we'll bring the politics into it, too. With me now, Neil Boudet, auto industry reporter for The New York Times, based in Detroit. Back during the 2008-2009 financial crisis, he led the Wall Street Journal's coverage of the bankruptcies and the federal rescue of General Motors and Chrysler. He also previously was based in Europe, where he covered the auto industry there. And yes, this is very much a global story, so that background will be helpful to us, too, in this conversation. Neil, nice to have you. Thanks for coming on. Welcome to WNYC. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. want to start by taking us back to the financial crisis of 2008-2009. Why did that hit U.S. automakers in particular so hard? Well, through really uh, the 60s and 70s, the UAW won uh, a series of uh, negotiations where their their pay increased and their benefits increased. And by the time you got to the early 2000s, 
um, Ford, GM, and then Chrysler, uh, really were carrying a very heavy burden of labor-related costs. They were paying um, the cost of uh, health care for retirees and their families, and this was a, a really large number, almost a million. Um, and on top of that, they were providing these, these uh, very rich pensions and were paying the highest wages in the industry. And opposite them were the foreign-owned automakers, Toyota, Honda, Nissan. Uh, they were operating non-union plants in the South where they were paying about half the hourly wage and um, were not covering uh, um, these pension and, and retiree health uh, costs. So there was a big disparity, and, and the big three um, had a really hard time uh, competing. They were losing money leading up to 2007, and in the 2007 um, contract talks, that was, that was where they made a big change. They created a trust fund to cover the retiree health care costs, and they allowed this, what they call a second tier of wages. New hires would come in at about $15 an hour. That was almost a little more than half of what the top UAW wage was at, at the time, $28 an hour. So they could hire new people and over time um, lower their average wage cost. Uh, but that was not enough, of course, because then when the financial crisis hit and auto sales plummeted, these companies were still not prepared for that kind of um, tsunami or economic storm. And GM and Chrysler were in such bad shape, they had to be ushered into uh, a government-managed um, um, bankruptcy. Ford was a little more forward-thinking, and they, they uh, took out loans and mortgages and lined up uh, liquidity ahead of time so they had enough money to go through under their own power. And that's what happened uh, in the financial crisis. Is, that, is there still that divide today, by the way, between what we call the big three, Ford, General Motors, and what's now Stellantis, um, that they are unionized and Toyota and others making cars in the U.S. are not? Um, the, 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 uh, the playing field is much more even these days. So the, the big three were able to hire these new hires and bring them in. Um, th these days, it's about $17 as a starting wage, and the top wage is 32 and it takes eight years to climb from that starting wage up to the top wage. And when you average it, um, the labor costs are, are pretty close. Um, the big three are it, all in, including wages and benefits. It costs them about $64 an hour. Uh, the transplants, that's with some, the term they use to describe uh, Toyota and Honda and those companies, Volkswagen, um, they're at about $55 an hour. And then you have Tesla which also operates a non-union plant in California and Texas, and their, um, their cost is about $45 an hour. So there's a difference there, but that still hasn't stopped the big three from reporting very, very strong profits over the last decade. Um, and the government bailout of the industry in the financial crisis just to continue on this history as we move our way to the present, how partisan or bipartisan was that? I mentioned the Mitt Romney op-ed let Detroit go bankrupt. Yeah, um, there was there was a lot of uh, Republican pushback, not just about bailing out the big three automakers, but also the Wall Street banks, because that was an even larger bailout than uh, than the uh, the automaker um, bailout was. 
um, there was a lot of opposition, but you know, it was that we were in a crisis time and um, somebody had to do something. Uh, some we had to take some kind of action, and in the end, um, you know, GM and Chrysler were back on their feet. And today, it's a it's totally different different picture than it was um, actually you know, 15 years ago or 14 years ago this year. Neil, let's talk about where EVs come into this. You've reported that the automakers are investing tens of billions of dollars in electric vehicles, but have yet to see significant sales or profits from them. And the union is concerned that the transition could cost thousands of jobs because EVs are cheaper to produce than gasoline-powered cars. Can you explain that last part first? Why are they cheaper to produce? Um because there are a lot fewer uh, parts. There's no transmission, there's no fuel system, no exhaust system. So it doesn't take as, as many workers to assemble them as it does a, uh, you know, a gasoline-powered car that has all these other, uh, other components. Are they also cheaper to maintain? This is just kind of a tangent, but based on what you just said, is the transition threatening the auto mechanic industry as we know it? Um, I do think, yeah, they're, they're, that's an issue there, too. Uh, they are. Uh, you don't need oil changes, for example. Um, you know, your transmission is never going to uh, freeze on you. Um, you're not going to have a leak in the fuel system or a leak in your gas tank. So um, there are uh, rep- repair issues that uh, are going to go away. But maybe good for the owners, I guess, who won't have as many repairs to pay for over the life <laughs> sure. of the vehicle. What guarantees regarding the EV era are the unions asking for in the current strike? Um, they want some protections or some measures they can take to discourage the automakers from closing plants. Uh, so one of them is under the current contract and the way it's been for a long time is they're not allowed to strike over a plant closure. And they want to have that uh, ability to go on strike if a company is going to close a plant. They're also asking for um, they call it a job security program. What they want is that if a plant closes, the company keeps the workers on the payroll. Um, they don't say for how long, but they want to keep them on the payroll and allow them to do community service in their community because they're trying to make the point that when a plant closes, the town that it's in suffers a lot of economic pain and, and uh, uh, damage. So, they, these are the measures they're talking about to try to really dissuade the automakers from putting down plants wholesale. Yeah, this might lead to skepticism on some people's part, right? Saying, wait, they're negotiating for a company that's making less money because of the transition to keep jobs that aren't needed anymore? Um, yes, uh, that's that's what they're saying. And years ago, they did have something like that. In 1984, um, they put in something that was called the Jobs Bank, and that's how it worked. When plants closed, the automakers kept the workers on the payroll at most of their salary. They didn't make cars, but they had to report for work, and they literally sat in a room and read books and played board games um, at the time, the automakers thought this was going to be a temporary thing. They would just do it for a year or two. They would restructure and downsize and become much more competitive and then need to rehire these workers. And, of course, that happened, and it dragged on 
uh, for a good 20 years before they eliminated the jobs bank. Stephanie in Florida is calling in about the EV issue. Stephanie, you're on WNYC. Hello. Yeah, hi. Thanks for taking my call. And Brian, I just want to say I'm a New Yorker, but even when I travel, I, I can't. I got to listen to you guys. Oh, it's great. thanks. Anyway, just two things maybe I was hoping he could expand upon. Um, and I'm, you know, as you would say, thoroughly unscientific. I heard this on another story is the, the distinction between um, non-union and union states and how that ties into EV production because Tesla's in all non-union states. And I just keep thinking there has to be a more sort of subtle or nuanced way to move forward with all this insofar as the future is EV. The second thing related to EV I've always wondered is, you know, yeah, the, the EVs are cheaper to make, but they're more expensive to repair. And I've heard this from friends who've bought EVs, and I've, I've always thought that the unions would be smart to try to um, take control in some way of or capitalize on increased EV repair expertise. As a not just building the cars but repairing them, uh-huh. and then thirdly, I, I've been um, and then I'll I'll go. I, I've been surprised at the lack of emphasis or inclusion of, you know, here we go again, um, the the compensation of the C-suite, um, very handsome, expanding, you know, Mary Barra has paid herself really nicely since the last uh, car industry crisis. And no one's talking about that either. That's just a little surprising to me. So on those three points, I'm curious what your guest has to say. Thank you. All right. Great, great question. And on that last point, we played a Biden clip earlier on the CEO compensation. Here's Bernie Sanders the other day at a union rally. It is totally reasonable for auto workers to finally receive a fair share of the record-breaking profits that their labor has produced. And you established before, Neil, that by many measures it is record-breaking profits that the automakers are making right now. Um, So to Stephanie's question on that and also to her question on how the the auto workers might transition into repair specialists in some cases, I guess we said before that they might be cheaper uh, to maintain. For owners, because you don't need oil changes, some repairs may not happen as frequently, but she's saying they're also more expensive to repair. Maybe that's true in other ways. Um, well, I think that's, in, in some cases, that's true of all cars these days because they're um, they're so electronic. They've got, uh, you know, yeah. computer chips in them. and. You've got to replace it, and that automatically is uh, is several hundred dollars, as opposed to, you know, years ago, you might have a hose break, and you you could get that installed, and the part, you know, cost uh, nine dollars or something. So, yes, uh, um, uh, EVs are heavily electronic, and uh, and the repairs on certain components can be very expensive. Um, on the uh, issue of CEO pay. Uh, I'll just say that uh, that uh, last year, Mary Barras, uh, she's the chief executive of General Motors. Her uh, total compensation package was $29 million. And over the last four years, wow. um, she's she's made over $100 million. Um, 
But, you know, I mean, CEO competition in many industries is very high. And compared to, uh, you know, the tech or Wall Street sectors, um, she's she's making less than, than many others. Um, but it, whether that's a, a fair uh, um, amount for her, uh, you know, I'll leave that up to your listener to decide. Yeah, well, certainly for people who talk about fair ratios from the top person at a company to the bottom person at a company, you were just talking about $17 an hour for new auto workers, um, which, I don't know, what is that, 30-something thousand dollars a year, up to $29 million? Uh, I can't even do the ratio math in my head on that one. Uh, now, the main Republican talking point on the strike, as they avoid the issues of corporate greed or concentration of wealth at the top or the decline of the middle class generally in terms of wages and benefits in this country. As they avoid all that, they argue that the Biden administration's climate policies are the real enemy. Here's Donald Trump, for example. My question for you, Mr. President, whose side are you on in this? Uh, I'm on the side of uh, making our country great. Uh, the auto workers uh, are not going to have any jobs when you come right down to it because if you take a look at what they're doing with electric cars, electric cars are going to be made in China. The auto workers are not going to have any, I'll tell you what, the auto workers are being sold down the river by their leadership and their leadership should endorse Trump. Trump asked by Kristen Welker on NBC's <laughs> Meet the Press, which side are you on in this strike? And that was his answer. Can, can you give us, Neil, some economics of the Biden EV incentives that are in the Inflation Reduction Act, the climate bill passed last year, and their implications for the automakers? Sure. They have given, um, they're making available billions of dollars in uh, mostly loans um, to the automakers to build battery plants and other EV component uh, production sites in the United States. And uh, Ford recently got um, um, about $9 billion from the federal government to uh, to build its battery plants. GM has gotten um, its own sum less than that, however. Um, but these incentives that they have offered are part of the reason that has uh, brought the foreign automakers to, to build battery plants in the South. As I mentioned, Toyota is building one in North Carolina and Kia and Hyundai. Uh, in Georgia. And so um, uh, these incentives do seem to be bringing manufacturing jobs uh, to the United States, EV-related manufacturing jobs. Republicans keep coming back to the argument in this context that the EV policies from Biden benefit China. At least in the short term? Um, I, I'm, I, I'm, not see, I'm not seeing how that it benefits uh, China. China is the world's largest auto market. They produce uh, that country produces more EVs than than any other country in the in the world, um, and they have their own policies to uh, to drive that. Um, but I don't see how the policies in the United States, as they are now, are are pushing EV production to to China. I mean, um, as I said, uh, Ford is building three battery plants, two in Kentucky, four battery plants, two in Kentucky, one in Tennessee, one in Michigan. They're building a new EV truck plant in Tennessee. Uh, GM is building a battery plant in Tennessee. Another one in Ohio is under underway. Another one in, in Michigan. Um, and Chrysler is building a battery plant in Indiana, and they're looking for a site for a second one. So huh. 
the, these companies are certainly are charging ahead in uh, putting production into the United States. Well, can the conversion to EVs avoid being another race to the bottom, like we've seen in other aspects of the globalized economy, if China is competing with us in this space and paying workers much less? Um, that's one concern of the uh, the UAW that um, you know if you if you uh, are, are going to pay people seventeen dollars an hour, um, as I said, that's in some places that's two dollars more than the minimum wage. They're concerned, and they use that term all the time: race to the bottom. And uh, that's what they say this fight is about. Um, uh, Sean Fain talks about that all the time, and uh, he broadens it and, and says that they're fighting for uh, the broader working class, not just the UAW, because if the UAW wins um, a, a, a very good contract for them, um, it will push nudge wages for uh, workers um, in other industries and in, in other auto locations uh, up as well. So to end on this political question, we've seen the white working class migrate over time from being more uh, pro-Democrat to being more pro-Republican. I wonder if you've covered how or to what degree that has happened uh, in the UAW over time and how the current presidential race as it's shaping up with respect to this issue, issue seems to be a tug of war for um, the hearts and minds of what we might call broadly the working class, at least as represented by the UAW membership. Because I think what we've been laying out here is the Democrats are saying, uh, yeah, you are striking against your bosses. Their greed is the issue, like you say. The Republicans are saying nothing about the alleged greed of the bosses, and they're saying, blame climate change policy. So do you think we're headed for, and I realize you're an auto industry reporter, not a political reporter, but are we headed for a, a major clash in 2024 in which um, climate-saving policies are used by the Republicans to try to keep the loyalty of the especially white working class as more their enemy than concentration of wealth in capitalism? Um, correct. I am not a political reporter, but I can say this, that the, um, the rank and file of the UAW does have a significant portion who have been voting Republican. I mean, Back in, in the 80s, when they talked about Reagan Democrats in Michigan, that was the, the uh, white working class auto worker. Um, and the question this time around is uh, the union, which has uh, for decades endorsed Democratic president, uh, presidential candidates, whether the U union leadership can uh, persuade the, the rank and file to vote more in favor of uh, the Democratic candidate than the Republican candidate. I did talk to Sean Fain about this very issue uh, several weeks ago, and he's aware of it. They, the union has not yet endorsed Joe Biden, um, but he knows that uh, in the end, they're, they're either going to have to endorse him or tacitly endorse him, because when uh, the Trump administration was in power, the National Labor Relations Board really became an adversary for for unions and, a, and an active um, ally of um, employers. And so it, it, Sean Fain does not want to go back to that 
and especially since they have plans of, you know, if they do well in this strike, maybe they can start uh, unionizing some of the the plants in the South. Uh, in the past, they've uh, had votes and lost at Volkswagen and Nissan, and they've tried to unionize a Mercedes plant. So a lot is hanging in the balance, and the uh, the late the union leadership definitely knows um, they're much better off uh, going down the road if Joe Biden wins a second term than if Donald Trump gets in for a second term. Neil Baudet, auto industry reporter for The New York Times. Thanks so much for today. We really appreciate this. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.